Good morning. It is good to be back here again, and I want to acknowledge, even though no one from Trails is here this morning, at least not that I'm aware of, but I want to thank them very much now that the apologetics class is over. I want to acknowledge what a blessing it is to have sister churches that can help out, and I, I owe a great debt to Aaron and to Chris in particular for freeing this church up that uh, that I could teach. That was a very rewarding time we wrapped up this last week. And it was a very encouraging time. Thank you for your prayers as I taught that class. A great group of kids that are launching out into the world in different ways. And that is uh, something I'm thankful I can be part of. So thank you. And unfortunately, now you're stuck with me for a little bit more. But we will uh, continue to work with like-minded churches as well. We are carrying on in our Gospel of Matthew series. So you can turn to Matthew 10. And we're going to look at the first 15 verses of Matthew 10 this morning. So once you're there, then as is our custom, I'll ask you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. And these are the perfect and inerrant words of our holy God. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, Find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And may God bless the reading of his word. So last week, finishing off chapter 9, Chris left us with an interesting observation from chapter 9, verse 37. Uh, And he warned us from caving into a kind of pessimism or gloominess that doesn't see adequate viability uh, in our efforts for gospel proclamation, for the, the spread of the gospel. And he pointed out, quite correctly I think, that the problem presented in verse 37 doesn't have to do with the fact that there's not converts out there. It's that there aren't workers. We're lacking workers, not people, to hear the gospel. Jesus talks in terms of language that the people who were leading Israel were blind guides and that they had clearly forsaken their duties to their people. It's a picture of the blind leading the blind. And in verse 36 of chapter 9, Jesus spoke of Israel as being helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus, as a preacher of the Old Testament, 
uh, is intentionally using imagery that uh, precedes him in the Old Testament. That kind of language of sheep without a shepherd is present in Numbers 27, 6 through 18, as well as in Ezekiel 34, 2 to 6, and 11 through 16. And as Jesus' ministry progresses, the conflict between him and the Pharisees continues to intensify. The conflict is going to reach a catastrophic point by the end of the gospel. But for now, Jesus is setting the stage for redemptive history to take the next step, to keep moving on. A couple weeks ago, Chris talked about the parable of the wineskins. And there's further clarification on this growing theme in the gospel. And that is that Christ has come to move things forward, to usher in the new covenant era. Christ is the termination point. We've talked about this before. It doesn't mean something is obliterated. It means it finds its final end. So Christ is the termination point of God's old covenant dealings. And we've seen that so often in this gospel. How Jesus is uh, the true and greater uh, fulfillment of all these pictures we've had uh, in the past. Jesus is Noah's ultimate ark. The ultimate shelter from the wrath of God. He is Abram's promised seed. He is Moses' perfect law keeper, and he is David's royal heir. Jesus is, in fact, the terminal prophet, priest, and king. He has fulfilled and perfected all three of those offices once and for all. And therefore, it makes sense that what we've been seeing all along this gospel is that Jesus' earthly ministry is carefully retracing all the steps of Israel so that he can be crowned the head of the new covenant people of God. Jesus took note of the problem in 9, 36, and 37. The sheep are there, but they lack a shepherd. The harvest is plentiful, but too few are willing to go out and get it. And these are both agricultural pictures. And so for those of us who are farmers, this maybe has a, a, a real sense of depth or passion in it. Farmers hate to see fruitfulness go to waste. And really, we all should. But there's a picture here that Jesus is painting, whether in the language of sheep or whether in the language of a harvest, that there is great fruitfulness that is going to go to waste until or unless somebody goes out there and takes responsibility for it. Jesus points at the problem and he does not take long to start taking responsibility for fixing it. In verses 1-4, through four, it says, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who was called Peter, and after his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And we should start to note here a distinction that comes to be made between the words disciple and apostle. Sometimes they're used interchangeably. All the apostles were disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. A disciple is anyone who is following Christ. So this room is filled with disciples of Christ. And the apostles were those who were specifically commissioned as emissaries or representatives, specifically commissioned by Christ for a particular task at a particular time in redemptive history. And so we do continue to have disciples today but the apostolic ministry of the apostles was reserved for those whom Christ specifically commissioned to that work. And the first picture here is the commissioning of these twelve. 
And they are given authority to do many of the same kinds of things that Jesus did. They're to cast out unclean spirits. They're to heal disease and affliction. And we know that disease and afflictions are the result of the fall. They're a result of sin. So in one sense, they are spiritual in nature, in their origin. There's a demonic connection to any of the harm that we see in our world. Because it comes from a corrupt, fallen, uh, sinful reality. And so sending out the twelve to copy his own ministry of healing is an act of defeating the serpent. The apostles are sent out to plunder Satan's goods, to defeat the work of the devil, and to push back against the curse. And because the apostles act like emissaries, that means when they speak, it is Christ speaking. They are agents of the king himself. So to hear the apostles speak is to hear God speak. And that's why their apostolic witness in scripture is the very words of God. It's not because these men are perfect or because they are junior messiahs, but it's because they were called and commissioned as Jesus' specific representatives. They contain a delegated authority. When we were, well, this is a number of years ago. Our kids were about four, three, and two, I'm going to say. And we've had a family custom. After first cut, we always go to Grand Forks for a couple of nights just to enjoy things. Uh, and when the kids were quite small, we got there one time. We got to the hotel room. And of course, naturally, they all started jumping on the bed. And it was getting a little rambunctious. And so I said, hey, you know what, guys? And I just said it kind of half seriously. Uh, someone's going to fall and bump their head. And Katie slid off the bed, went over to the phone, picked it up, had a very short conversation, hung up and said, Daddy, I just talked to the doctor, and the doctor gave permission for the monkeys to jump on the bed today. <laughs> she knew that for, for her to overrule that, she needed to appeal to a higher authority, a delegated authority. She needed to one-up me. I think that was a fictitious conversation, but I'm not sure. And the word authority is significant. Appealing to authority. What does that mean? It is God alone who has inherent authority. God and nobody else has authority as part of their very, as his very makeup. And so it is not a mistake. What word do you see in the word authority? Author. That's not a mistake. There's the same root here. God is the author. God is the source of all authority. In him alone is authority inherent. Because God is the source of all authority, as a natural result, all human authority is delegated authority. It's delegated. It's derived. We don't have it in ourselves. It's given by God. So, a father, or a mother, or a church elder, or a king, or a president, or a prime minister have no authority inherent in themselves. They are commissioned by God by virtue of their position. They are delegated whatever authority they have. No human can act autonomously or on their own authority. It is always delegated and derived. And so the apostles have this delegated authority. They're called as Christ's delegates at a special time in history when God's redemptive purposes are taking the next step. And this delegation of authority to show again how the, the deep connection and the symbolism that Jesus is intentional about conveying Sounds a lot like the transfer of authority from Moses to Joshua. If you want to turn in Numbers 27, I'll read it, so if you don't want to turn there, that's fine too, but gladly turn there. Numbers 27, 16 through 18. Look at another delegation of authority. Look at the language that gets carried over. 
Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. And the setup is similar. The concern is that the people should not be lost without a shepherd. And so the master, Moses, commissions the one who is going to come after him. And now too, Christ, the greater Moses, is commissioning his heirs to carry on the work of gathering the sheep in. And Christ calls twelve apostles. And we're also familiar with the fact that it's twelve, that we don't give any thought to the fact that it is twelve. Twelve is not a conventional number. Ten would make sense, right? Ten is a nice even metric number. Fifteen is a good number. It's a multiple of five. Why twelve? Why twelve? I think this correlates to the twelve sons of Jacob, who is the better Israel. Remember, Jacob gets renamed what by God? Israel. The nation of Israel is named after Jacob and his twelve sons. And here we have the greater Jacob commissioning his twelve. The, the continued well, the, the sons of Jacob in the Old Testament do become the twelve tribes of national Israel. And the continued importance of these twelve patriarchs is shown even after the Exodus. This is still significant by the time of Numbers 1, when Moses takes the census of the men of war of Israel, and one authority figure, one head from each of the twelve tribes is commissioned to assist Moses in this task. So there's still this headship or this twelve tribe mentality that is there in the nation of Israel. And as we talked about in Sunday School this morning, if we want to see, as we ought to, both continuity and discontinuity between the Old and the New Covenant, we'll have to see that the kingdom of God that Jesus preaches isn't something that replaces Israel, as though it's like the 82nd Airborne that comes out of nowhere and, and changes everything overnight, nor does he establish a parallel people separate or, or apart from Israel. Rather, the biblical language involves grafting and pruning, one organic connection. I like to think of it as an acorn now growing into an oak tree. Continuity and discontinuity. And the kingdom that Christ is establishing on earth is spiritual in its origins, because it is from God, it is from heaven, but it is just as physical and just as solid and just as real as any nation or people group on the map. And I think we can make confusing remarks here on this on either side. Sometimes people talk about the kingdom of God as though it's only spiritual. So where's the kingdom of God? Well, mostly behind my eyes and between my ears. That's it. It's spiritual. It's spiritual. It's a spiritual kingdom that makes no difference in the real world. But this will never do. How can people's hearts be transformed without it having a profound effect on the total person, on the total man? The gospel of Jesus changes the heart the heart changes the man, and the man changes his surroundings. There's no escaping that. We cannot spiritualize this as though it's true in the 14th dimension somewhere, but in the real world, it really makes no difference whatsoever. It's spiritual. Well, we cannot separate the spiritual from the real, from the physical. These two are meant to work together. The gospel changes the heart. The heart changes the man. The man changes his surroundings. It must be that way. And just like it took 12 patriarchs to build and develop the kingdom of Israel... So it is going to take 12 patriarchs to build and expand this new kingdom of God on earth. And by selecting 12 new patriarchs from the 12 tribes of Jacob, the first Israel, 
Now Christ is commissioning 12 men to carry on the mission of conquest and filling the land with the knowledge of the glory of God. And so the seed for the new Israel comes from inside the familiar old Israel. There's continuity and discontinuity both. And by the mere act of Christ commissioning 12 men, this would not have been lost on his audience. Sometimes we read our Bible with our perspective, not living in the biblical world. And sometimes, if you're like me, you, you read something in your Bible, and because you've read it, and you've heard it a dozen times, you start to wonder, well, why would somebody get so upset about that statement? Why would the Pharisees get so enraged by this? When Jesus picks 12 men, it's a taunt. The people would have thought, who does this guy think he is? Jacob? Well, funny you should ask. Yes, a better Jacob. A better patriarch, a better head of the kingdom. Just like the 12 patriarchs who descend from Jacob, Jesus' 12 men, 12 patriarchs, are something of a motley crew. They're a bit of a mixed bag, just like Jacob's own sons were. And we've noticed already, these are predominantly blue-colored men, some of whom are fairly rough around the edges. You'll notice, probably, especially if you listen to the Apostle Peter, he probably never made it to a Dale Carnegie course on how to win friends and influence people. Okay? He is a rough man from the wilderness. None of them had a Master of Divinity from any seminary. Hmm. None of them attended a church planting seminar. None of them were familiar with nine marks of a healthy church material. But they were commissioned by God. And those things are all fine and all good. But the dividing line here, what makes these men effective is not head knowledge, it's not some kind of earthly credentials, it's the fact that they are commissioned by God. They have communion with Jesus Christ. And so for us today, think of this, when we think about Christian resources, how many well-organized and how many well-delivered sermons can we hear? It's perfectly orthodox, it's perfectly fine, but there's no passion. It's like it doesn't matter whether this is true or not. And you can have someone who's maybe not formally trained that has fire in his bones for the Lord and he will preach the word of God. The dividing line is not your earthly credentials. It's not your background. It's not how many courses you've taken. It's all good. I am the last person to disparage Christian education. But the mark here is, have you been commissioned by Christ? Do you know Christ personally? Are you communing with Jesus Christ? In the final end, what Christ is looking for is those with a genuine fire in their bones to make him known. And these 12 men have that, at least 11 of them. The connection of the 12 men to the patriarchs of Israel may bring up a question, even about the word patriarch. I had a short discussion with someone that didn't know what I was going to preach this morning. Had a question about that word this morning. Uh, and that's good. Our society has been deeply deeply corrupted and impacted by feminism and by the sexual revolution. And if you are young enough to be alive in this room, you have lived in that world. You have breathed that air. And like fish who are the last to notice water, we frequently are the last to notice the uh, sometimes unbelieving assumptions of the world around us. This connection to the patriarchs of the Old Testament. Simply put, the word patriarchy uh, simply means father rule in the biblical sense. Pater is a father, right? San Diego Padres are the, the fathers, 
Catholic monks from Mexico. He's a padre, painter, his father. And arche just has to do with rule, like a monarchy, for example. So in the best sense, in the biblical sense, all patriarchy conveys is honoring the creational norms of men taking responsibility, of male headship. And the Bible is equally clear that man and woman together are made in the image of God, and as a result, both are equal in value, and that from creation on, men are designed to lead in a general sense in creation. And we're not going to do a deep dive on this today because it's not the main point of the text, but if we think about uh, patriarchy or men leading, or the fact, why does Jesus choose 12 men? Well, because that was the culture he lived in. It wouldn't have taken women seriously. No, did they take the women seriously who were the first of the two? Jesus is not in any way constrained by cultural norms. If he wanted to change this economy, he would have, and he chose not to. There is something inherent in male headship that Jesus continues on in choosing these twelve. And yes, the term patriarchy has generally fallen out of favor in our society. Generally, the only time you'll hear the word is if some campus activist is telling you what should happen to the patriarchy, and it almost always involves a four-letter word that we should do with the patriarchy. So it is fallen out of favor. And in more conservative Christian circles that want to honor the biblical clear instructions that men are to lead in the church and the home and generally, the word complementarian has become more popular. And I think it's a good word, but it is getting severely redefined. Um, not recently I heard a church leader that talked about, yes, he's a complementarian because he believes men and women are different. That's where his complementarianism ends. Uh, but because men and women are different, because I'm a complementarian, that's why we need to have female church elders, because it's going to bring a different voice to the thing. But if we still redefine complementarianism, one wonders how useful some of these words are. And I'm not stuck on one word or the other. I think complementarianism is a perfectly fine word, but we need to think about the concept behind it. Jesus chose 12 men in continuity with the biblical pattern that men are to take responsibility. doesn't mean women aren't responsible for themselves, but it does mean men are to lead and take sacrificial responsibility in a unique way in God's creation. And on that note, perhaps the most succinct definition of biblical masculinity I've seen, and this is going to become important later, is that biblical masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Biblical masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. And here they are. Jesus and his twelve, and all of them taking responsibility for a bad situation that they did not cause. The unbelief, the blind guides in Israel are not Jesus' fault, it's not the apostles' fault. But biblical masculinity says, I don't care who created this problem, I'm going to be the one to take responsibility to start fixing it. It's like a, a captain whose ship hits an iceberg at night while he's sleeping. It's somebody else's fault, but it's his responsibility. That's what male headship is. Taking responsibility even when you're not at fault. Sacrificial leadership. And Matthew goes on to name the twelve. And so here too we see some interesting patterns. Matthew arranges them in six pairs of two. And if you notice in your Bible, these pairs are all separated by a semicolon. And so keeping with the theme of Christ and the Apostles, following Israel's pattern of taking conquest of the land, uh, one British commentator, Alistair Roberts, has suggested a connection here to the spies that go out two by two uh, in the Old Testament. And we know that the Apostles do go out, according to Mark 6, verse 7, they do go out in two by two pairings. 
These pairings include brothers, such as Peter and Andrew, and James and John, two sets of brothers. And while the listings of the apostles vary in the different gospels, it is interesting that Peter is always named first, and Judas Iscariot is always named last. And Peter doesn't formally hold any superior position to any of the others. He's not a super apostle. He's just one of the twelve. But his outspoken character often means he's the most prominent among the apostles. Peter is a true ready, fire, aim kind of a guy. Or, or someone that might be referred to as, uh, as I've once heard, often wrong but never in doubt. That's Peter. Perhaps some of us can sympathize with Peter. Maybe some of us have a ready, fire, aim personality as well. And Judas Iscariot being named last is something of a spoiler for the story that is to come. But he is obviously the only apostle of the twelve who eternally disgraces himself. And so putting him last is in fact fitting. They do save the least for the last. Some of these apostles become better known to the readers of the Bible. For example, Peter, John, <clears throat> and Matthew all go on to write books of the Bible. And some are known only because they're included on the list and we know very little or nothing else about them. And Matthew does something interesting here with his own name. In all the other accounts, Matthew and Thomas are always a pairing, but Thomas is always last, and Matthew is first. And in Matthew's own accounting, he puts Thomas ahead of himself. And he adds the additional detail that Mark and Luke don't, and that's that he is a tax collector. And I think this is fitting of a Christ-like attitude, putting others ahead of ourselves. Matthew not only has the courtesy to put others ahead of himself, but he also has the honesty to point out his former occupation as a tax collector, the reminder of the sinful life from which Christ called him. Matthew sees himself as a man who has reckoned with his own sin and has been rescued by the grace that he has received from Jesus Christ. And he demonstrates with his example that there is no room for self-promotion in the kingdom of God. Other things we can note from this group of apostles is how complex and dynamic uh, this group actually is. We have two pairs of brothers among the twelve, but a deeper examination of biblical genealogies, if you put all the pieces together, would also reveal that there's a lot of common history between these guys. It appears that actually quite a few of them are either cousins or second or third cousins. And when we think of things like doing ministry together or even the betrayal that happens within the group, think now of how complicated Think of our own families. How complicated do things get when there's family ties interwoven with conflict, or with betrayal, or with difficult situations? That would have been no different among these twelve. Many of them were related. But it's more complex than that. Matthew marks himself out as a tax collector here in his own listing, or someone who was seen as a traitor against the Jews towards the Romans. He's a sellout. And he's in the same small band with Simon the Zealot. Remember, the Zealots are those who are ready to take military arms against the Romans. They hated them so much. So you've got a sellout to Rome and a guy willing to attack Rome in the same group doing ministry together. That's an interesting dynamic. And I think the fact that Jesus puts these two men together in this group shows the power of the gospel to reconcile people who wouldn't naturally get close to one another. And that's what the church is. The makeup of the Twelve is something of a picture of the Church. A group of men who may just as well be connected by family ties as they may be separated by other identifiers. And yet, because each is united to Christ, by extension, they are able to enjoy union and peace with one another. That is the power of the Gospel. 
when Christ builds his church, he puts people together who wouldn't naturally fit together. We're an odd bunch, and that's a glorious thing. It's a wonderful thing. That's by design that Jesus does that. And a question to ask ourselves here, too. Are we only willing to connect with people who think and act like us and have the exact same background as us? Or are we willing to rub shoulders with people who might be different than us, but we share a common Savior? And it is something of an irony in the reformational and evangelical world. There is sometimes a very ironic, and it is truly ironic if you think about it, habit of becoming sectarian. But this is ironic, because one of the defining characteristics of the Reformation, of evangelicalism, was to get away from the small traditions of men and see the big story of Christ building his church through history. We should not be sectarian. We should know what we believe. We should be willing to defend it, but we ought not to be sectarian. Are you willing to see Christians from other groups, other backgrounds, other ethnicities, other ages in history, or other traditions as brothers and sisters, despite sometimes real differences? Are we willing to do that? Or we're willing to see how big the kingdom of God is. Matthew goes on in verses 5 through 10. These 12 sent, these 12, Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without pain, now give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And we know from what we've already seen in Jesus' ministry that Gentiles are in fact included in the new covenant people of God. Back in Matthew 8 verse 10, after healing the centurion's servant, Jesus commends a Gentile, saying he's never seen so much faith uh, as he has in all of Israel. And so Gentile inclusion isn't actually a new thing. It was actually already happening in the Old Covenant era. Many weeks ago, when we looked at Jesus' family tree, we see Gentile women getting grafted into Jesus' own family tree. So this isn't a, a totally new concept, but it's going to get expanded with time. However, at this point in history, the priority is clear, that Jesus wants the gospel to go out to the Jews first, and then to the Greeks. And that, in fact, is the pattern that Paul also brings up in Romans chapter 1. This gospel went to the Jews first, and then to the Greeks. So for now, the goal is to gather in the lost sheep of Israel before going on and sharing the gospel outside as well. God, through history, has sent many prophets to Israel, and now they are presented with their final prophet. They're running out of time. Jesus is going to later point in some of his parables, like the tenants in the vineyard and the day laborers, how the time is running short. A decision will have to be made. In these parables of Jesus, as we go on through the gospel, I hope we've seen, and we'll continue to see, Jesus' parables certainly include moral instructions, but we should never ever treat them as though it's just this grab bag of life hacks that's unrelated to the story that's progressing. The parables deal with where we are in the story, and the parables are going to intensify the conflict intentionally, I would say, intentionally intensify the conflict between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. Christ instructs the apostles to preach the same gospel message that he was, and that before him John the Baptist had been preaching. And they are to validate their ministry with the same sign gifts that Christ himself was doing. The apostles received this gospel freely, and they are uh, charged uh, to not charge admission for their preaching of the gospel. How ironic would that be? You know, 25 bucks a head to get in and hear the gospel. That doesn't make any sense. So the, the gospel is 
freely given. Free grace. And they're to travel light. Not to take too much stuff with them. And this accomplishes several things. One, it means that they're mobile, so they can easily move from one town to the next. And it provides them with a unique evangelistic approach. And we'll see hints of this in the Old Testament as well. Part of their evangelism is a hospitality test. And this is where I think that the idea of the groupings in two does in fact picture the spies in ancient Israel. There is a test involved. Who's going to give safe harbor to these people? Are we going to find people like Rahab who will take us in? Or are we going to find people who have no room for the messengers of God? <clears throat> While the apostles were not to charge admission for the gospel, it is nevertheless the responsibility of God's people in this hospitality test to provide for those who dedicate themselves to vocational ministry. In verse 10, it says here that the laborers deserve their food. And that is in agreement with what we read in 1 Timothy 5.18 and 1 Corinthians 9. And it's actually appealing back to an old Levitical uh, law about uh, the ox treading the grain. Right? People should be able to share in their work. We have people that help work at our farm. Uh, and it would be a little bit odd if I said, yeah, you can work here. You can do all the work. Uh, but no, you can't drink any milk or, uh, or enjoy the fruits of your labor while you're on our farm. Of course, if you're doing the work, you get to enjoy the fruit. Uh, and that is the, the ox, the don't muzzle the ox uh, paradigm that they are repeating here in terms of those who minister to God's people. And this will be a general comment because we're in a unique position, so maybe I'm in a unique place to say this because I'm kind of exempted from this because I do make my living primarily through farming. But I think something we should all think about as we think about church life in North America is this. Churches that have the means... Churches that have the ability to provide a living wage, a living for their minister, should think about what's being communicated by the fact that ministers are among the lowest paid vocation in North America. Okay? Just think about that. What does that say about the way we value a minister's work relative to an engineer's work or a teacher's work? I can say that because it doesn't hurt too bad because we're in a unique spot. But let's think about that. What are we communicating about value? if we expect missionaries uh, and ministers to live on a shoestring. Sometimes it's by necessity. There's not resources. But if there are, let's consider how we value people's work. <clears throat> but the twelve go out, and they preach in their travels, and they start to discern who is receiving the gospel and who is rejecting it. And verse 11 through 15 goes on and says, In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Here's the test. Here's the hospitality test. Will they receive you or won't they? There's no in-between option. You have room for the gospel message, or you don't. And the message and the messenger are so closely connected here that to reject Christ's messengers is to reject the gospel. They've been commissioned by Jesus. If you don't take these people in, you are rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the apostles go to a town and they seek lodging with a household who will take them in, and from there they preach the gospel more broadly in that community. And if nobody will take them in, then the whole town is to be cursed. 
So not only is the olive branch of God's offering of peace taken away, but a curse is delivered to the household or on the town. And the shaking off of the dust of the sandals is a, is a custom uh, that the Jews would have done for unclean villages. If you enter a, an unclean Gentile village, you shake the dust off your feet because you don't even want the uncleanness of these people's dirt to follow you anywhere. Get rid of it. God has cursed these people. Get rid of it. Leave it all behind. No remnants of it shall come with you on the next leg of the journey. And the wrath of God is on those people if they, receive, if they refuse to receive the gospel. So the shaking off of the dust is a sign of leaving the uncleanness behind rather than carrying it along with them. And then Christ makes an interesting comparison here to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's interesting to note that in the case of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as here, it seems that there's a pattern of a widespread societal blessing when there's believers even just present. In Genesis 18, when Abram intercedes for Sodom, God seems willing to spare the whole city for the sake of several righteous. And here too, the town itself would have been spared in some sense, not that people are saved, but in a temporal sense, had there been the presence of a believing church, a believing people among them. And I'm not sure how far we should or can push that point. And I don't think it's a linear relationship. But the relationship does seem to be real. The church is not just good for us believers, but there is a sense in which it's a preservative to the world. It's good for the world when the church is faithful. When we plant churches, when we raise covenantly faithful families, when we operate our businesses according to Christian principles, we are shining the light of the kingdom in dark places. And this is a temporal blessing to the world around us. And this should, in fact, encourage us to shine the light around us. But also to remember that temporal blessings will not give eternal life to any individual person. Where no belief is found, whether it be in this town or in the household, the curse is as severe as could be. Jesus says that the punishment to those who reject the apostles will be worse than the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so it's worth thinking about the judgment, the nature of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah and the sin that was happening there. The sin of Sodom was a steady unraveling. And the prophet Ezekiel in 16, uh, verses 49 and 50, describes the state of Sodom this way. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Does that sound familiar? Soft, proud, well-fed people? Sound like anything you've ever experienced? It sounds a lot like the world I live in. And some people appeal to this passage in Ezekiel to downplay how this turned into sexual sin. Because we can't talk about certain sexual sins today. So they'll downplay it and say, well, it was a lack of hospitality. Yes, it was a lack of hospitality. But sins keep moving. Ideas keep moving. Nothing sits still. In Genesis 19 and in Jude 1, it makes it clear that homosexual lust was clearly in view. So how does that fit together? Lack of hospitality, proud, arrogant, won't help, and, and sexual sin, how does that all fit together? In Romans 1, paints a, a similar picture of this deeper and deeper and deeper descent into sin. And here's how it works. Proud, soft, and rich people start to feel self-sufficient. I can buy my way out of almost any problem that I'm going to face. And I become a proud man. I become arrogant. I can buy my way out of trouble. 
And most people in North America can, by the way, out of significant trouble. And rather than being grateful to God, we become proud. Look at what my hands have built. And then they don't help the poor, and they get increasingly vain and self-absorbed. And the pride of self-absorption is the sin of falling in love with a mirror, which is ultimately what homosexual lust is, is falling in love with a mirror. I don't want the self-sacrifice of learning to know a woman. I want someone just like me. It's proud, it's self-focused, it's self-indulgent, and it's a dead-end road. Instead of the life-giving, one flesh union of man and woman, which involves sacrifice and commitment, homosexual lust is a dead-end road of vanity, narcissism, and flamboyant pride. It is incapable of forming one flesh union or of producing life. It is a literal death wish in every imaginable way. And this is the descent of Romans 1. This is the descent of the people of Sodom. And if we're paying attention, I don't think the story looks much different right now, does it? How does self-sufficient pride turn into sexual anarchy in our culture? It's not a mistake. And who's talking about it? Who's pushing that? I'll leave that there. In Sodom, two angels, which interestingly, again, two messengers, two angels, we're seeing this thing here, two by two. In Sodom, two angels, two messengers, as the apostles are messengers, come to the city and give the same hospitality test that the apostles were instructed to give. Lot and his family rise to the challenge and offer shelter to them. But the worthless men of the town soon surround the house, desperate to sodomize these angels from God. And that's an old language. Sodomy is the male homosexual act, and it's named, it used to be in our criminal code, it's named after the city of Sodom. It's the act of male homosexual perversion, sodomy. And think about this, how depraved does a people have to be that their natural response to angelic messengers from God is to sodomize them? How proud and how vain do we have to be to think that that would be a normal response? And then, after sparing Lot and his family, God burns this wicked city with sulfur and fire, sparing nobody. And even Lot's own wife is consumed by the lapping flames for the mere act of looking back when she's told not to. And Jesus says, if you hear the gospel and you reject it, you are in worse shape than those people. Friends, if you are here this morning and you can hear this message and you walk away from it, it is worse for you than for Sodom and Gomorrah. If you grow up in a believing family and your mom and dad pray for you and share the gospel with you and you're going to go your own proud, self-indulgent way, it will be worse for you than for men who want to sodomize angels. This hospitality test is a big deal. And we can never make light of how corrupt sexual sin is in both its origin and its outcome. When the men of Sodom were sinning against the law of God and sinning against nature, the unbelieving households of Israel were sinning against the gospel of the kingdom. And rejecting the light of nature and the law of God is a very serious business. And God says he is storing up wrath for those who do this. But when he then sends his messengers, and ultimately his own son, who have an announcement that there's a way out, there's a way of peace, there's a way back to God from this wrath, and people reject that message, now you are dealing with a tsunami of wrath that you do not even want to look at. It is serious business to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We must bend the knee to King Jesus. The burning sulfur lapping up the soft vein and proud sodom when it pales in comparison to what is in store for those who hear the gospel and reject it. And we're going to see this intensified with Jesus and the Jewish leaders. We're going to see a very specific in history judgment on Jerusalem for rejecting Jesus. And that's a picture too to the ultimate final judgment at the end of history. There is going to be a history altering judgment when God judges the Pharisees, destroys the temple, destroys the city of Jerusalem. It's catastrophic. When you read about it through the historians, there's women eating their babies, boiling their babies and eating them. This is the kind of judgment in store for unbelief. And that is just a picture of the judgment to come. In the final end, everybody picks a side. There is no in-between. There is no such thing as an almost Christian. Each person in this room must choose a side. You are going to pass Christ's hospitality test or we are going to fail it. We will make room for the kingdom in your life or you will not. You will choose life or you will choose the death wish of Proverbs 8.36 that says that all who hate God love death. So which side are you on this morning? Young men, you may not be down in the descent as far as the Sodomites are in the days of Lot, but you are making decisions every day whether you are going to waste your strength of your youth on yourself or whether you're going to man up and take your post in the kingdom of God and spend your strength on something eternal that can never fail. Young women, are you cultivating habits of vanity and self-absorption? Or are you cultivating habits of genuine virtue and biblical beauty? Older women, are you wasting your final years on yourself? On self-indulgence, spa, and wine nights? Are you becoming a busybody? Or are you investing in the lives of younger women, showing them what feminine glory really looks like? Older men, what are you going to do about your wealth of experience, the lifetime of experience that you built up? Are you going to curse the young men for being lazy and not knowing better? Or are you going to catch on that the younger men won't learn unless the older men teach? How are you going to handle this? Which side are you on? What are you doing with the hospitality test? And if you're going to say, well, I'm not ready to make a decision, you have made a decision. Delaying a decision is a decision. It's a decision to not obey the Lord Jesus. There is no delaying. Delayed obedience is not obedience. Ask yourself this morning, where are we at? What's the disposition of my heart? There is no in-between. We receive the gospel or we reject it. And there is nowhere else. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for your kindness to us. I want to thank you that despite hundreds and even thousands of years of sending messengers to your people to reject them and to mock them and to mistreat them, that you are patient still. You are kind still and you keep sending. Lord, you sent your own son and then you sent apostles after him and even today you are extending your hand of patience, sending up the gospel through churches and missionaries and Bible translators. Lord, but you are so clear that the day is coming to an end. When we will run out of time. Lord, and I pray for each one here this morning. Lord, we do not want it to be worse for us than for those who killed your messengers. 
and hated them in the past. Lord, I pray that you would do work in the heart of each one this morning. Remind us, Lord, that there are no sort of Christians. There's no half Christians. Either you have rightful rule and reign over every part of our thoughts, of our behavior, of our lifestyle, of our decisions, of our future, or we reject you outright and throw ourselves into a death wish. Lord, I pray that no one here this morning would do that. Lord, send your spirit, work mightily in the hearts of all of us and of our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that we do not yet know. Lord, I pray for generational faithfulness. I pray for a trust in your purposes that we will spread this good news, that you will find us to be people who are hospitable to your messengers and to your gospel. Help us, Lord, as a church to be hospitable to one another as a fitting response to what you have done here. Despite our similarities and despite our differences, Lord, I pray that we would love one another well, that we would be the picture of your church that you have called us to be. Commit this all to your kind, gracious, and long-suffering hands. Amen. Please stand for the closing song.
They received the charge. The Lord Jesus is showing us once again that he is on mission to retrace the steps of Israel and to do it right. He establishes the new covenant kingdom using the seed of the old covenant people. It took 12 patriarchs to build a nation, and now Christ takes 12 men to build an even more glorious kingdom. Now, as then, he sends his messengers. Now, as then, we are faced with the test of acceptance and hospitality. Will we receive the good news and come gladly into the kingdom of peace, or will we resist? Will we use our strength to man our station as we build and expand this kingdom, or will we let it evaporate as we squander it on our own self-destruction? The kingdom of God is at hand. Let us as individuals, as households, and as a church commit ourselves to the mission. And like the apostolic band, let us turn a profit on all that God has given us, both our close connections and our diverse gifts. And I'll leave you with the benediction from 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And go in peace. Before everyone is going too far, remember for those staying for baptism classes, we're we're just gonna set up a table and meet off to the side here.